to God's Word this morning, and we'll turn first of all to Peter's second letter and chapter 2, reading verses 4 through 10, and then if you keep a finger there, and we'll turn back to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and we'll read Genesis 11, 27 through chapter 12 and verse 9. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10, and then Genesis 11, 27 through 12, verse 9. My uh, heart's desire is merely to support the preaching ministry of Pastor Bob and uh, as overseen by the eldership of the church. And so it's a joy for me, it's a nice challenge to ask Pastor Bob uh, what he'd like me to preach upon. And he said, why don't you preach two sermons on Lot? And so I did the homework, prayed it through, and so we come today to two sermons on Lot, and I pray that it will be as instructive for you as it has been for me. So I relish the challenge, and I pray that you will join me in rising to the challenge of looking at the life of Lot. Well, we read 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and the apostle has been speaking about the prevalence of false teachers and the fact that there is a day of reckoning coming. And it's in the context of that day of reckoning that he speaks in what we may deem to be very surprising ways about Lot. And we'll have more to say about that in a few moments. Let us hear God's word. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day by day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And then turning back to Genesis 11, verse 27. And we are going to cover this morning, God willing, in light of uh, 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8, we're going to cover in summary fashion Genesis 11, 27 through 15, 6 this morning. And pick it up, God willing, this evening at 15.7, and take it through to the end of Genesis 
19, where we read the last of Lot in the narrative of Genesis. Genesis 11, 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. And Haran died in the presence of his father. Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that had acquired, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. They set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moriah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on still going towards the Negev. The Lord bless this reading of his holy words. I believe uh, Elder Mulder is going to lead us in prayer once again. Father, will you send your spirit into our hearts and minds to help us live according to your word? Will you give your servant what is needed to proclaim that word? In our Savior's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Well, the title of our two-part series today is A Man Called Lot, following in the pattern of Pastor Bob as he has given the title to each uh, sermon in the series. We want to look this morning how Lot learned the gospel. As we come to this familiar story, we are nevertheless struck by two mysteries. The first is the mystery of Scripture. I'm sure that I am not alone in having felt this, that as you read the chapters in which Lot is referenced in Genesis, Genesis 11 through 19, 
and you summarize in your mind what it is you learn about Lot. I dare to suggest that there are few of us who would come out with the conclusion that Lot was a righteous man. And yet, when you turn over to the New Testament, as we have read this morning from 2 Peter 2, you find that Lot is described as a righteous man, not once, not twice, but three times he is described as righteous. And that leaves us with somewhat of a mystery. Which section of Scripture do we believe? Which section of Scripture do we primarily turn to? I want to say then that we are going today to read the chapters, Genesis 11 through 19, through the grid of what the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in 2 Peter 2. Because one of the things which we hold to as Protestants and specifically as Reformed believers is that Scripture is its own interpreter. Sometimes we don't know how to interpret the Scriptures. Sometimes we get into an awful pickle when we go to the harder Scripture and try to interpret the hard Scripture by terms of the easier Scripture. When in fact a faithful interpretation of the Scripture takes hold of the more straightforward statements of Scripture and interprets the more difficult ones in light of the easier ones. And so we are going to use 2 Peter 2, which is the easier Scripture, And we are going to interpret Genesis 11 through 19 in terms of what the Apostle Peter says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about Lot and try to understand how what Peter says in 2 Peter 2 and what Moses writes in Genesis 11 through 19, how they square, how they dovetail together. I think we can do that. So we'll look this morning at how Lot learned the gospel, at least in theory. And then tonight, God willing, how he embraced the gospel. I want to say to you that uh, it's one thing to learn the gospel. I want to speak to the young people for a while and say to you, you grow up in Sunday school. We have thanked God already today for your Sunday school teachers, the provision of them. And they're going to teach you faithfully. And they're going to teach you from God's word, the Bible, what the Bible says. But I want you to understand, as many of us have had to understand, that there's one thing to learn about the gospel in Sunday school, in youth groups, from Pastor Bob's faithful ministry. It's quite another thing to embrace the gospel. And so as we make our way through Genesis 11 through 19 today, in light of what Peter writes in 2 Peter 2, we're going to be reminded that it is not enough simply to understand the gospel, to articulate the gospel theoretically, but we need to embrace the gospel and the Christ of the gospel. And in that way, we may be able to square both these passages of the scriptures. So there's the mystery of scripture itself. And then also by way of introduction, there's the mystery of life. How can the apostle Peter three times say that this man Lot was righteous. Does that not fly in the face of all that we read in these eight or so chapters in Genesis? I want to say to you that we are dealing with the theme of righteousness. That's the theme. 
Peter introduces. And yet we need to understand that there is a distinction between what we call the imputed righteousness and the imparted righteousness. And I do believe it's in this sense primarily so of the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that Peter, notwithstanding the details of Lot's life, can three times call him righteous Lot. The imputed righteousness, this is the perfect righteousness of Christ, procured by His keeping the law on our behalf, whereby we are able to be accepted as righteous, perfectly righteous, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A righteousness that is reckoned to us at the cross of Jesus Christ and applied when we believe, when we rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the wonderful thing about the cross, that it works both ways. The light of the cross shines backwards, retrospectively, to the Old Testament saints. And it shines prospectively to us today. And this is part of its glory, part of its power. Let me quote for you a wonderful chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11 of Justification. The justification of believers under the Old Testament was one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. But those who know through faith the imputed righteousness of Christ, that perfect righteousness which Christ has procured by keeping the law perfectly on our behalf, also then go on to a life pursuing imparted righteousness. In other words, we not only gain in the Lord Jesus Christ a new standing, but in the gospel we also gain a new nature. And in that nature we have both the desire and the ability to pursue righteousness in a way in which we wouldn't do and couldn't do otherwise. And so although we shall come to these notions of imputed and imparted righteousness tonight, it's good for us as we seek to look at Genesis 11 through 19 through the grid of what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 2, it's good for us to understand what we're talking about. The imputed righteousness of Christ pertains to our justification before the face of God. The imparted righteousness belongs to our sanctification. And we'll look at both of these by the time we come to the end of the day. But this morning, in light of Peter's inspired interpretation of Lot's life, we consider how Lot learned the righteousness of God in the gospel. This is our focus this morning. And I want to point out five lessons that Lot would have learned by the time he came to trust in the Lord for his salvation, for his justification. And first of all, we learned that Lot learned the gospel from the Lord. He didn't necessarily learn it from the Lord at the time. But God has a way of storing things up in our minds. So the things that are meaningless to us at the time become of relevance to us as we look back. So I'm thinking then of Lot from the standpoint of his conversion, as we would call it, looking back and itemizing the things that led to his conversion, that led to him being called by the Apostle Peter, righteous Lot. The first place Lot learned the gospel 
from the Lord. And I'm looking here at 1127 through 127. Lot doesn't tell us what brought him to faith. There is an element of conjecture here. We can only deduce by the events of his life what influenced him. But I want to say, first of all, given that salvation is of the Lord, that it was the Lord who influenced him first. Notice, first of all, the Lord's kindness. Lot has a sad upbringing. We don't know anything about his mother. We know that his father, Haran, died. We're told that he died in the presence of his father, Terah, which means either that Haran died before his father, which he evidently did, or he died literally before his father's face. And so, in God's providence, Terah leaves Ur of the Chaldees, and he takes with him Abram and Sarai. He leaves Nahor and Milcah, and having no child... Abram and Sarai take Lot along. Here's this man who has, in some sense, been orphaned. His father is dead. We don't know anything about his mother. And yet, our disappointments are God's opportunities. And this is very significant that Lot is taken with them, for Lot then becomes privy to what God is going to do in Abram's life. Do we are reminded then that while the book of Jude says that some come to faith through fear, Jude 22 and 23, we're told by Paul in Romans 2 verse 4, that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And let me say to you this morning, if you are outside the Lord Jesus Christ, and the goodness of God to you means nothing at this point, I pray that there will come a point in your life when you look back and you begin to contrast in your mind's eye all the things that you have deserved from God in terms of facing up to his justice, facing up to his righteousness, and the things that he has actually done for your life. And what is God doing? God is saying, through my providence, through my goodness, I am calling you, calling you to repentance. And Lot perhaps could look back in days to come and say, I was born in not very ideal circumstances. I don't remember my mother. My father died when I was young. But the Lord was kind, and now I see it. But we notice in these verses, not simply the Lord's kindness, but we also recognize the Lord's presence in the opening seven verses of chapter 12. Significantly, only after terror has died does the Lord appear to Abram. First of all, he speaks to Abram, verses 1 through 5. He gives them this tremendous promise that he will bless him and make his name great and he will be a blessing i will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you i will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed the lord in a powerful way breaks into abram's life making this mighty promise that he be a father of a great people and although we don't know whether Lot was actually privy to the Lord speaking to Abram in their family circles, surely this must have been a token of conversation. Here they were growing up as idolaters, idol worshippers, and yet the Lord comes, breaks in. And not only does he speak to Abram, we find that from verse 6 and the first half of verse 7 that the Lord appears to Abram. 
You know, it's one thing, isn't it, to speak to somebody on the phone. It's one thing to receive an email from somebody who you've never met. But then when you do meet them, your fellowship, your connection goes up a notch. And you begin to communicate, you begin to connect. And this is what's happening here. That the Lord who has spoken to Abraham now appears to Abraham. And it's as if the Lord is drawing Abraham into his fellowship. And Lot, as somebody looking on, would have been privy to what God has begun to do in Abraham's life. Or what has been happening. Well, the Lord has told Abraham to move from Haran, where they went initially, to Canaan. And Abraham has obeyed. And in honor of that obedience, the Lord now appears to Abraham. And it's as if Lot, watching on, says, I begin to see the promise of God coming to fulfillment. That if I stick with Lot, if I stick with Abraham, I will be blessed. If I stick with Abraham, I will be protected. And so he sticks with him, and Abraham oversees his care, even though Lot was undoubtedly a grown man by now. I want to say to you how many of the Lord's people have been brought to Christ through the Lord's breaking into the lives of those around them. And we cannot see the Lord speak, we cannot hear Him, we cannot see Him appear, but we know that there are those in our lives who have changed and we are intrigued. We may not come to faith ourselves initially, immediately, but we store it up. This is the first point then. The first lesson, Lot learned the gospel through the kindness of the Lord. But then secondly, looking at uh, verse 7 of chapter 12 through chapter 13, verse 9, we learn that Lot learned the gospel from Abraham. You see, here's this man. He is the great recipient of God's grace. God has intervened in his life. But Lot, closely connected to Abraham, gets to see the way in which grace has impacted the life of Abraham. Grace is now suffusing the life of Abraham. He gets to see it. He's an eyewitness of it. And what does he see? Well, verses 7 through 9, he sees Abraham's response to grace. What does Abraham do? Well, as he's moving from one place to another, and you, you, you read of this repeatedly, he builds an altar. Now, altars go back to Genesis 8 and verse 20. They imply the sacrifice of an animal. And Abraham builds this altar in this primitive portrayal of the gospel of Christ who is to come. And it's as if every time he builds an altar, he is communicating with God, saying, I know that fellowship with you is only through the shedding of blood. And sometimes Abraham builds an altar simply to worship God, realizing that his worship can only come through shed blood. Sometimes he builds an altar because he needs restoration, and restoration can only come through shed blood. And on and on and on. Abraham builds these altars, and so Lot gets to see Abraham's response to the grace of God. And isn't this what is very familiar to us in Reformed circles? That grace is followed up by gratitude. Those of you who grew up in the continental Reformed tradition know this very well. You can repeat in your sleep the formula of the Heidelberg Catechism, sin, salvation, service. 
guilt, grace, gratitude. And it's that combination of grace and gratitude which we're seeing here being lived out by Abraham. But Abraham is not a perfect man. And what is Lot going to do with the imperfection of Abraham for what happens next? Well, there's a famine in the land, chapter 10 through 13.5. And Abraham comes up with this very humanistic plot, orchestration to save his life. Even though his wife is an elderly person, she's going to be deemed a beautiful person. And so he's scared that his life is going to be taken as they go down into Egypt. And so he takes things into his own hands. And he says, you say that you are my sister, and it will spare my life. And of course, you know what happens. It's the first of two occasions in which they come up with this orchestration, and it does not go well. The Lord afflicts Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh comes to them and indicts them for what they've done. And so they leave Egypt with their tail between their legs as we enter into chapter 13. And he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him into the Negev. Lot has seen Abram at his best, building the altars unto God. And now he sees Abraham at his lowest getting his wife to tell a lie, at least a half lie, which is a lie, in order that his life might be spared. And we know from later in the book of Genesis, from chapter 20, I believe, in verse 12, that Sarah is his half-sister. And so there's something of a finagling of the truth here to get away with it. But what has Abraham procured? Well, he's distrusted God, he's endangered his wife, he's endangered the promise of a mighty nation, he's put himself before his wife, and he is the reason the great plagues have come upon Pharaoh. So as we enter into chapter 13, what does he do? He's very rich in livestock, in silver and gold, and he journeys on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. He goes back to the gospel. And he builds this altar. And he wants fresh fellowship with the Lord whom he's let down. And so he sacrifices an animal. And through the shedding of blood, faith looking forward to the Christ who is to come, he knows restoration. But Lot is watching it all. Let's speak about this for a moment. The unconverted person around us is not necessarily looking for our perfection. But they are looking for our repentance when things go wrong. I believe it's J.C. Ryle who says that the unbeliever is not looking for our perfection but they are looking for the evidence of life. They are looking for the evidence of growth. Because where there is growth, there is life. And where there is life, there must be some source of life. And so Lot, seeing Abraham at his best, now sees him at his worst. But the consolation in Abraham's mess here is that he at least knows to turn back to the gospel and to do it 
without shying away from his mistakes and say, oh God, here I am. Let me call upon your name afresh. I have let you down. I have endangered my wife. I have threatened the promises that you have made. I have brought this great plague upon the ungodly. And Lot gets to see it. It's as far as we can tell. So there's the response to grace. There's the need of grace. And then thirdly, there's the example of grace. Abram, freshly chastened, comes into this dispute between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram. They become so great. God has blessed them that they're filling the land. And they need what was called during World War II, Laban's realm. They need room to live. And so what are they going to do? Well, Abraham comes up with this solution. Verse 8. Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Here's a man who has fresh dealings with God. My life does not consist in my possessions. Abraham, you, Lot, you just make the choice. You just make the choice. My life is more than my possessions. My life is my relationship to God. The example of grace. What spiritual prophet Christians can bring by taking the high road, even though it may cost us dearly. How much does the salvation of a soul mean to us? When we come to those difficult places where circumstances ask of us whether we are living for this life, just like the unbeliever, or living for the next life. And so Abraham here takes the high road and says, Lot, you make the choice and you go. Let us separate because we are brothers. And so thirdly, then we learn that Lot learned the gospel from himself, chapter 13, verse 10, through chapter 14, verse 16. Lot does make the choice. You would think after all that Abraham has done for him, he would say, now, Uncle Lot, you've been so generous to me. You've been so unbelievably kind, you and Sarah. Listen, you are the senior. I am the junior. I have benefited from the blessing upon you and from the divine protection that you have known. So you make the choice, and I'll just deal with whatever is left over to me. Not a bit of it. Notice what happens. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of the Lord, like Eden, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from one another. What a selfish act. Listen to what the theologian R.B. Kuyper says. Selfishness is not only sin, but lies at the root of all sin. Isn't this what we are taught in Sunday school upwards? The middle letter of sin is I. And here we see the I in sin looming large. Lot says, in effect, wonderful Abram, thank you very much. This part is like the Garden of Eden. 
I'm going for that. It's not as if sometimes where you have two children and you have uh, some treat and the parent, the wise parent says, now one of you cut the treat in half and the other one chews the piece. And you try to orchestrate some fairness between children as you divide up the goodies. But there's nothing of that here. Abraham says to Lot, you choose. Lot grabs it with both hands and says, I will indeed choose, and I'm choosing for myself. And so he goes off towards Sodom. He pitches his tent significantly as far as Sodom, even though we read in verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. He learned about his heart. But then he learned about his helplessness, chapter 14. By the time we come to this chapter, he's no longer on the circumference of Sodom, in the suburbs. He's now in the city itself. But what he does not know when he's made the choice is that he is entering into a war zone. And so we find in this chapter that there's a battle between the four kings and the five kings. The four kings attack the five kings of the region. And Sodom gets caught up. And sin is like that. It promises us that we can be engaged in sin and yet still be safe. And so what do we do? especially those of us outside of Christ. We pitch our tent as near to sin as possible, yet remaining respectable. But we don't count on the gravitational pull of sin. And so he pitches his tent on the outskirts of Sodom, but he is pulled into the city. And now he's in the city. He finds himself in a war zone. And what is more, he cannot help himself. He cannot escape. He is powerless to save himself. And so one person does escape. They come to Abraham. And what does Abraham do? He comes to the rescue. He saves the city. And he brings back, verse 16, all the possessions. And also brought back his kinsman Lot with all his possessions and the women and the people. Let me say to you this morning, if you are outside of Christ and you find yourself in some circumstances in which you are visibly entrapped. Learn this, that God is speaking to you about a greater spiritual entrapment, that you have of yourself neither the desire nor the power to extricate yourself from. And so Lot has learned about the Lord. Lot has learned about Abraham. Lot has learned about himself. But now, fourthly, he learns, verses 17 through 24 of chapter 14, about Melchizedek. After the battle, Abraham becomes hero of the moment. And he's faced, in verse 17, with the king of Sodom, this evil king, who wants to bless Abraham for what he's done in rescuing his city. But Abraham has none of it. He's not going to compromise. But then this figure, Melchizedek, comes out of nowhere and Abraham blesses this figure. Now God has given us in Melchizedek a wonderful portrayal of the gospel. A portrayal that the author of Hebrews takes up in Hebrews 7. And there are four things which I want to run through very briefly about Melchizedek which bespeak 
Jesus Christ. The first is that Melchizedek comes from nowhere. Suddenly he just appears, verse 18. King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went. But he just appears. And this portrayal is intended to remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ who came, as it were, from another country, who came from on high. And what does he come at? Uh, come as? Well, notice Melchizedek's name, King of Righteousness. He's the one who has been born of a woman, born under the law. And under the law, he procures a righteousness that we cannot procure for ourselves. And so he is the only perfect righteous person. And as Lot begins to think about his own situation and his own fallenness, his own unrighteousness in the way in which he thinks, in the choices he makes, in the impulses of his heart, here he is faced by this king of righteousness. And he's probably looking on, seeing how Abraham will respond to this king of righteousness. And what is more, not only as a king of righteousness, but we're told he comes from the king of peace. He comes from the city of peace. He is the king of peace of peace. You see, in the Bible, righteousness and peace go together. We're coming up this fall on the remembrance of those uh, historic events in Wittenberg in 1517, where one man, tormented in himself, struggling to know where he can obtain a righteousness acceptable to God. And he searches around his own life, and he finds that he has none acceptable to God. He cannot work up this righteousness to get to God. And then, reading the letter of Paul to the Romans, he realizes that this perfect righteousness has actually come from heaven above, come down in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only in the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfection of his righteousness that he has procured by living under the law perfectly in a way that we could not, can he come to peace. And the amazing way here in which righteousness and peace are bound up in this one Melchizedek. And it's as if God is speaking to Lot and he's speaking to us and he's saying this. This is the gospel. Righteousness acceptable to God and peace with God wrapped up, encapsulated in one person, the greater Melchizedek. And so what does Abraham do? He blesses this Melchizedek. And he gives him a tenth of all that he owns. And if Lot was watching on, he gets to learn the lessons of Melchizedek. He's probably humiliated. He's not yet humbled, but he's humiliated. He's been rescued by his uncle. But the only one who can rescue his life is this greater Melchizedek. Let me speak to you if you are yet to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be humbled and yet not yet humbled. And I pray that as we go through this story, you would indeed be humbled. Not only in an external capacity, but in your soul, 
so that you come as Martin Luther came, as Lot undoubtedly came, although we're not given all the details, to this point, having ransacked his life, looking for a righteousness acceptable to God, and he comes up with this, that there is none. And so I must look for what the reformers call an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from outside of myself, and I must trust in God for that righteousness that I cannot procure, and only on that basis can I know peace with God. And so fifthly and finally and more briefly, Lot learned the gospel from the covenant. The battle is now over. Melchizedek has vanished into history. And God appears to Abraham again and he enters into a covenant with him. We're not going to go into the details of the covenant, but we come to this most important of verses in verse 6. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Again, we cannot say whether Lot is around. I don't think he's around for the actual making or cutting of the covenant. But in the family circles, he undoubtedly heard about what had gone on. And he witnessed the life of Abram as a man who believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And so notice here just two things. What Abraham did. He believed the Lord. Moses, as he writes this account, is not speaking simply of the immediate promise that's been given. He's speaking of the life of Abraham as a life of faith encapsulated. Everything that's gone on before, bringing him to this point, that all I can do is rest upon the Lord. Lot is yet to do that. But he gets the privilege of seeing the friend of God and the secret of his friendship with God that he rests upon the Lord. And so what did the Lord do? The Lord counted his faith to him as righteousness. This does not mean that there was something inherently righteous about Abraham's faith as if faith was his righteousness. This is very important because we're living in days when you hear people talk about their faith as if it is their faith that saves, as if there is something inherently righteous in faith, as if there is something inherently righteous in a faith even that does not rest upon Christ in which the name of Christ, the person of Christ, is not even present. Listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith. We are justified not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, the sinner. Faith is reckoned as our righteousness in that faith rests wholly on the righteousness of Christ and His shed blood. Again, let me say to you, if you're outside of Christ this morning, these are some of the lessons that are before you if you are going to come to safety in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to learn that it is the goodness of God calling you this morning to faith in Christ. You need to learn that all around you are those 
whose lives have been broken into sovereignly by God. And what he has done for them, he can do for you. You need to learn the state of your own heart. That you have a wicked and a deceitful heart. And your life is helpless without God's blessing. You need to learn that there is a greater Melchizedek in which all your hope is wrapped up. The one who is the ultimate, the true king of righteousness, king of peace, together never to be separated. That you cannot know peace with God without resting entirely upon the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And the fifth thing you need to learn is that you have no special bargaining power with God. You can only come to this right relationship with God, whereby your person is accepted before God by doing the very same thing that Abraham did, and I believe Lot in turn did. Believing in the Lord. What does that mean? It means to utterly collapse upon the Lord. And I want to encourage you with this thought as we close. That we are now living in the new covenant era. Possessing a better covenant sealed with Christ's blood. And we have the whole of the New Testament that tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. How he came, how he lived, how he did what you can never do. How he kept the law at every point. He did not sin in his mind. He did not sin in his speech. He did not sin in his actions, either by sins of commission or sins of omission. He was the one whom his enemies could say, I find no fault in him. And so you are invited, not simply to store up these facts about the gospel, but to embrace the Christ of the gospel by simply resting upon him. And God willing, this evening, we'll go on to see how Lot rested upon the Lord, not simply for his justification, how he was just in the sight of God, but also for his sanctification. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for the coherence of your word. We thank you, O God, for the way in which you have revealed the good news of Jesus Christ, concealed in the Old Testament, but revealed in the New. We pray that as your people, those who are sheltered in Christ, we may rejoice in the gospel. We pray for any who are outside of Christ. Father, that they would come with simple faith, simple trust this day to rest entirely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow your word with your blessing and we'll give you the glory. In him we pray. Amen.